0: This is The Memo, by Howard Marks. Today we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. In this episode, Howard reflects on uncertainty, which was originally published on May 11th, 2020. Here's Howard.
1: I think that one of the most interesting things about the memos as a body of work is that they give you an indication what was going on in the world at the time they were written. And maybe as interestingly, I hope, it gives you an idea of what I was thinking at that time. It's easy for people to say, you know, back when the pandemic was getting started, I thought this, this, and this. And most people are subject to revisionist history. And most people would like to say that they saw it all coming. But the memos. Are a contemporaneous record of what was actually happening and what I was thinking. So I put out a memo in January based on an analogy between gambling and investing called You Bet. But then when the pandemic really started in, I wrote a memo a week for six weeks. Number one, there was so much to write about. And number two, I thought that my clients and my readers would need some help getting through that period. And I wanted to provide as much help as possible. So I tend to respond to what's going on in the environment. And this was obviously a pressing need. Safe to say I wasn't doing anything else. I wasn't going out to dinner. I wasn't going to weddings or parties. We weren't going out to exercise or to socialize, to shop. So we all had a lot of spare time on our hands. And I think we were stimulated by the urgency of the pandemic. So as I say, I wrote six in a row, a memo a week for six weeks. I ended up writing a total of 13 last year, I thought, which is obviously triple my normal output of about one a quarter, but I thought it was important. Most of them dealt directly with the pandemic, the resulting economic disruption, and the investment implications. But when we were Already into the pandemic by a couple of months, I wrote this memo in May of 2020 entitled Uncertainty because there was so much in the pandemic that we were uncertain about. And I think that uncertainty versus certainty is a very, very important topic with me. One of the things I write about and speak about the most is the high level of imprecision and ignorance that befalls most investors. The reason I do so is because so much of investing seems to be based on forecasts that have a very low probability of being profitable. I've spoken and written often about the fact that I believe most forecasts are extrapolations. Extrapolations are usually correct. But everybody makes the same extrapolation, so when the event comes to pass as predicted, nobody makes any money from that prediction. On the other hand, every once in a while, somebody predicts something which is not an extrapolation. That forecast, a sea change in the environment, a deviation from trend, would be very potentially profitable if it were correct. But most major forecasts of deviation from trend are not correct, and so those aren't profitable either if you add it all together, very few macro forecasts are profitable. And yet people keep making them because A, most people hate to say, I don't know. And B, most people don't like the idea of investing in things that are dependent on future events without having a forecast of what those future events will be. But they do so without thinking, but what's the probability that I'm right? And when we engage in investing actions, that's one of the questions we always must ask ourselves. I believe that when you're dealing with the future, you really need two things. You need a forecast, everybody makes them, but you also need a judgment about the probability that your forecast is correct. You should not treat all your forecasts as if they're equally likely to be correct. You say to me, Howard, What's the weather going to be tomorrow? I can tell you within a range and I have a very high probability of being right. If you say to me, what's the probability that Tesla will come out with a new car within the year? I can say, well, I think it's probably 60-70% and there's a good probability that I'll be right based on their past behavior. But if you say to me, what's the stock market going to do next week? The correct answer I may say, well, it goes up most of the time. It'll probably go up. I attach a very low probability to that forecast being right. So different forecasts that we make have different probabilities of correctness. Different amounts of reliance should be placed on them. And that's a very important thing. I write all the time about forecasting. My great search for appropriate quotes about forecasting was kicked off by John Kenneth Galbraith, who said, we have two kinds of forecasters, the ones who don't know and the ones who don't know they don't know. And then in the memo, after relating Galbraith's quote, I throw in a number of the quotes that I've been collecting on this subject for decades now. My Newest favorite is from Ian Wilson, who was the chairman of General Electric at one point in time. And he said, brilliantly, I think, no amount of sophistication is going to allay the fact that all of your knowledge is about the past and all of your decisions are about the future. This is a fabulous statement, and it accurately shows what we're dealing with here investing is about positioning our capital so that it will benefit from and not be harmed by future events. But we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And there's no such thing as knowing anything about the future or being able to prove anything about the future. We should bear those facts in mind when we try to make decisions regarding the future. Albert Einstein, source of some of my favorite quotes and never on physics, said, I never think about the future. It'll come soon enough. I don't waste my time, for the most part, trying to figure out what's going to happen in the stock market next week or the economy in five years, because it's unlikely to be productive. Warren Buffett, who is a student not only of investments, but also of investors, said forecasts usually tell us more about the forecaster than about the future. And that's really important. And I think that in many ways, forecasting is a flight of egotism. But perhaps the greatest of all is from George Orwell, who said, people can foresee the future only when it coincides with their own wishes, and the most grossly obvious facts can be ignored when they are unwelcome. This is really on the subject of bias. And there is something called confirmation bias, which is extremely important it's human nature. We have a forecast. We hear in the next day, dozens or hundreds of things that bear on the subject of the forecast. First of all, we get updates and we get a chance to see how things are going. Secondly, we hear other arguments about what's likely to happen. And the truth is that it's a human tendency to accept and integrate and repeat the ones that confirm our beliefs and to overlook or dismiss or counter the ones that run in opposition to our beliefs. That's human nature, and it happens in all fields. Shahram Heshmat wrote in Psychology Today in April of 2015, once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. Confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively. We pick out those bits of data that make us feel good because they confirm our prejudices. Thus, we may become prisoners of our assumptions. And I think it's very important to acknowledge the high level of our uncertainty rather than be trapped by our biases and predilections. 50 years ago, Simon and Garfunkel had a song called The Boxer, And it had a great line in it. A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. We have to understand that tendency and fight it because it will only lead to error. Challenging your biases, accepting the limitations imposed by your biases and the limitations in particular of your forecast, puts you in a very ambiguous territory, which are headed by the assertion, I don't know. Now, number one, it requires a humility that most people may find painful to practice to say, I don't know. Secondly, in the business of investing, the question is, how will clients and prospective clients relate to a manager who says, I don't know? I think that the human tendency would be to go to look for one who does. Now, none of them do. But now we're back to Galbraith's quote. We have the ones who say they know what the future holds and the ones who say they don't. And I believe that the average client, or certainly the average man on the street, would be more likely to take advice from someone who says, I know the future, than someone who says, I don't. And it's painful once you hold one point of view to receive inputs that are contrary. So it's very hard to disregard them. A great deal has been written about biases, and in particular this one, and they are dangerous to clear, productive thinking. Well, I think that when you are in a field that rewards confidence, it's important to be confident. I think, for example, that you can't be a great athlete if you don't feel like a winner. You can't hit winning shots in tennis, ability aside, if you're not confident in your ability to hit them because you'll say, well, if I try to hit too close to the line, it could go out and I could lose the point. But I think that confidence is extremely important in investing. I think there are fields where confidence is extremely important. I think in investing, which is entirely about the future, and especially given the fact that the future is A, unknowable, and B, highly subject to random events, I think it's very important to be humble and understand the limitations on foreknowledge. Essential. On the other hand, if you have too much humility and are too convinced that you don't know anything about the future, you can't be a good investor because you have to take positions based on your reasoning. And you have to be prepared to hold on to those positions if things go against you. So if you say, well, I don't know anything about the future. I'm going to buy this stock. It goes down 20%. You have no foundation on which to base the right decision. The thing you have to do is you have to recheck your thesis, recheck your information, recheck your analysis. And then if you still believe in those things, you have to have enough confidence to continue to hold that position, maybe even to add to it. There's nothing like adding to a position which is temporarily down for incorrect reasons and have it rebound. That's a great thing, but it's not that easy because you shouldn't buy anything just because it's up, just because it looks like a winner, but you also shouldn't sell anything just because it's down. And people do sell because they're afraid it's going to go down more, but you have to have confidence to hold when appropriate, But that confidence can't extend into hubris or overconfidence. And you shouldn't sell because things are down, but you also shouldn't buy just because things are down. You have to, as I say, recheck all your assumptions and your analysis and then decide whether it's prudent to add to your position, which is now on the bargain table. So like everything else in investing, you need confidence, but not too much. And you should have humility, but not too much. I've always thought it was a good idea to invest scared. And that means, number one, it protects against overconfidence. Problem is, sometimes it protects against confidence at all. But I think it sharpens your focus. When you're afraid of losing money, you will look harder at things than when you are supremely confident. And one thing about having a cautious approach to investing is that when times get tough, you don't have so much invested that it keeps you from doing the right thing. So I think that it's important to maintain a certain level of doubt. That's all about intellectual humility. What does intellectual humility mean? It means acknowledging what we don't know. There was an article in Duke Today, issued by Duke University for its alumni, by Allison Jones, who says that intellectual humility has been something of a wallflower among personality traits, receiving far less scholarly attention than such brash qualities as egotism or hostility. And it says that intellectual humility is the opposite of intellectual arrogance or conceit. In common parlance, it resembles open-mindedness intellectually humble people can have strong beliefs, but recognize their fallibility and are willing to be proven wrong on matters large and small. So it's not good to say I'm never right. It's not good to say I'm always right. It's good to say I have my beliefs, but I could be wrong and I have to prove them to my satisfaction every time I act on them. The Allison Jones article is based on a paper and goes on to discuss it. The term intellectual humility has been defined in several ways, but most definitions converge on the notion that intellectual humility involves recognizing that one's beliefs and opinions might be incorrect. It's as simple as that. I mentioned earlier that I started off my memo writing in 2020 with one on gambling based on a book by Annie Duke, who was practically a PhD in behavioral decision-making, and she went on to become the first female star of the poker tour and the world champion. And she says in her book, Thinking in Bets, what good poker players and good decision-makers have in common is their comfort with the world being an uncertain and unpredictable place. They understand that they can almost never know exactly how something will turn out. They embrace that uncertainty, and instead of focusing on being sure, they try to figure out how unsure they are, making their best guess at the chances that different outcomes will occur. This is a great way to think about this. And to put it simply, as I said in the memo, intellectual humility means saying, I am not sure. The other person could be right. Even I might be wrong. I think it's essential trade for investors. I know it is in the people I like to associate with. I don't even like to hang around people who think they're always right. They're not that much fun. Back in May of 2020, I came across an article that was recommended to me by Leslie Lichtenstein at the University of Chicago. The article was in the publication Behavioral Scientist, written by Eric Anger. Among other things, it says, Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Being a true expert involves not only knowing stuff about the world, but also knowing the limits of your knowledge and expertise. He said the point is not that true experts should withhold their beliefs or that they should never speak with confidence. Some beliefs are better supported by the evidence than others, after all, and we should not hesitate to say so. The point is that true experts express themselves with the proper degree of confidence, meaning a degree of confidence that's justified by the evidence. And I wrote in July, my memo, Thinking About Macro, that most economists and market strategists never bark to market. They never report their track record. When did he ever see an economist who said, I think there'll be a recession within the next six months, and the last 10 times I said that, I was right about three times. They never report that. There is no evidence with regard to the efficacy of their forecasts. Anger goes on to say that you can compare what you hear on TV against a tweet from medical statistician Robert Grant. Grant said, I've studied this stuff at university, done data analysis for decades, written several NHS guidelines, including one for an infectious disease, and taught it to health professionals. That's why you don't see me making any coronavirus predictions. In my first memo on the pandemic, I quoted from a Harvard epidemiologist, Mark Lipsich who said, in my words, that there are facts, there are logical inferences from past experiences, and there are guesses. That's what he said about assessing the pandemic. But because of the imprecision that is involved in economics and investing, there are no facts. And in most cases, there are no prior episodes which are exactly analogous. What does that mean? It means, for the most part, we're down to guesses in the end. I think that it's very important for people to bear that in mind. Another thing that's very important is that the Eric Anger article goes on to say, calibrating your confidence can be tricky. As Justin Kruger and David Dunning have emphasized, our cognitive and metacognitive skills are intertwined. People who lack the cognitive skills required to perform a task typically also lack the metacognitive skills required to assess their performance. Incompetent people are at a double disadvantage since they are not only incompetent, but also likely unaware of the incompetence of most forecasters. It's a catch-22. In order to be able to assess the forecasting ability of a so-called expert, you have to be expert enough to assess their forecasts. And if they were that expert, would you have to hire an expert? So it is, as I say, a catch-22. Anger goes on to say, it is fine and good to have opinions and to express them in public, even with great conviction. The point is that true experts, unlike charlatans, express themselves in a way that mirrors their limitations. I conclude the memo with a bunch of bullet points that I'll read out here because I think they're important. The world is an uncertain place. It is more uncertain today than at any other time in our lifetimes. Few people know what the future holds much better than others, and yet investing deals entirely with the future, meaning investors can't avoid making decisions about it, the essential conundrum. Confidence is indispensable in investing, but too much of it can be lethal. The bigger the topic, world economy, markets, currencies, interest rates, the less possible it is to achieve superior knowledge. That's why Oaktree sticks to what I call the micro, not the macro. Even our decisions about smaller things, however, companies, industries, securities, have to be conditioned on assumptions regarding the bigger things. And so they too are uncertain. You can't make an earnings prediction for a company without having an economic framework. The ability to deal intelligently with uncertainty is one of the most important skills. In doing so, we should understand the limitations on our foresight and whether a given forecast is more or less dependable than most. Anyone who fails to do so is probably riding for a fall. I end with a few words from Voltaire 250 years ago, who said, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And that's why a highly developed sense of uncertainty and intellectual humility is essential for outstanding investing.
0: And now, here's Uncertainty. By Howard Marks. I wrote a memo a week for six weeks starting on March 3rd, but I've skipped the last three weeks. First, the string had to end sometime, and second, I tried to adhere to the principle that if I don't have anything additive to say, I don't write. Hopefully, you'll find this one worth listening to. Our inability to know the future is a theme I've touched on repeatedly over the years but now I've decided to devote an entire memo to it. Being at home for nearly two months means I've had a lot of time on my hands, like everyone else. And it's a good thing, because getting philosophical musings down on paper is a lot harder than writing about current events and what to do about them. And while I'm explaining myself, I'll apologize up front for the number of citations and their length. But there's so much wisdom I want to share. All we don't know. As everyone knows, today we're experiencing unprecedented, or at least highly exceptional, developments in four areas. The pandemic, the economic contraction, the oil price collapse, and the Fed government response. Thus, a number of considerations make the future particularly unpredictable these days. The field of economics is muddled and imprecise, and there's a good reason it's called the dismal science. Unlike a real science like physics, in economics there are no rules that one can count on to consistently produce a given outcome, as in if A, then B. There are only patterns that tend to repeat, and while they may be historical, logical, and often observed, they're still only tendencies. In some recent memos, I've mentioned Mark Lipsich, professor of epidemiology at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. In my version of his hierarchy, there are A. Facts, B. Logical inferences from past experience, and C. Guesses. Because of the imprecision of economics, there certainly are no facts about the economic future. Economists and investors make inferences from past patterns, but these are unreliable at best, and I think in many cases their judgments fall under the heading of guesses. These days I'm often asked questions like, Will the recovery be V-shaped or a U, W, or L? And, Which of the crises you've lived through does this one most resemble? Answering questions like those requires a historical perspective. Given the exceptional developments I just enumerated, however, there's little or no history that's relevant to today. That means we don't have past patterns to fall back on or to extrapolate from. As I've said, if you've never experienced something before, you can't say you know how it's going to turn out. While unique developments like those of today make forecasting unusually difficult, the presence of all four elements at once probably renders it impossible. In addition to the difficulty of understanding each of the four individually, we can't be sure how they'll interact. For example, will the massive, multifaceted Fed-Treasury program of loans, grants, stimulus, and bond buying be sufficient to offset the unparalleled damage done to the economy by the fight against COVID-19? To what extent will reopening bring back economic activity? And, to what extent will that cause the spread of the disease to resume and the renewal of lockdowns? For investors, the future is determined by thousands of factors, such as the internal workings of economies, the participants' psyches, exogenous events, governmental action, weather, and other forms of randomness. Thus, the problem is enormously multivariate. Take the current situation with its four major components— COVID-19, the economy, oil, and the Fed. And consider just one, the disease. Now, think about all the questions surrounding it. How many people have it, including those who are asymptomatic? How likely is contact with someone who's infected to create another case? To what degree will distancing and masks deter its spread? Will the cases be severe, mild, or asymptomatic? Why? Will the supply of protective gear for medical personnel, hospital beds, and ventilators be adequate? Will a treatment be developed? To what extent will it speed recovery and prevent fatalities? What will the fatality rate be relative to age, gender, and pre-existing conditions? Will the impact of the disease on young people worsen? Will people who've had it and recovered be immune? Will their immunity be permanent? Will the virus mutate and will immunity cover the new forms? Will it be possible to inject antibodies to prevent infection? How many people have to be immune for herd immunity to effectively stop the further spread? Will social distancing delay the achievement of herd immunity? Is the Swedish approach better? Will a vaccine be invented? When? How long will it take to produce and deliver the needed doses? Where will the U.S. stand in the line to get it? How many people will refuse to be vaccinated? With what effect? Will vaccination have to be renewed annually? Will the virus succumb to warm weather and humidity? Will the virus be with us permanently? And will it be controllable like just another seasonal disease? Where am I going with this? My point is that very few people can balance all these considerations to figure out our collective risk. And that's just COVID-19. Now, think about the many questions that pertain to each of the three other factors. Who can respond to this many questions, come up with valid answers, consider their interaction, appropriately weight the various considerations on the basis of their importance, and process them— for a useful conclusion regarding the virus's impact. It would take an exceptional mind to deal with all these factors simultaneously and reach a better conclusion than most other people. I believe a computer couldn't do so either, especially given all the subjective decisions required in the absence of historic precedent. The challenge lies in trying to be above average in assessing the future. Why is that so hard? First of all, forecasting is a competitive arena. The argument for the difficulty of out-forecasting others is similar to the argument for market efficiency, and thus the limitations of active management. Thousands of others are trying to, and they're not empty suits. Many of them are educated, intelligent, numerate, hard-working, highly motivated, and able to access vast amounts of data and computing power. So, by definition, it shouldn't be easy to be better than the average. In addition, since economics is imprecise, unscientific, and inconsistent in its functioning, as described just now, there can't be a method or process for forecasting that works consistently. To illustrate randomness, I say that if, when I graduated from business school, I was offered a huge budget, an army of PhDs, and lavish financial incentives to predict the coin toss before each Sunday's football games, I would have been a flop. No one can succeed in predicting things that are heavily influenced by randomness and otherwise inconsistent. Now, consider the possibility that reaching conclusions is especially difficult in times of stress like today. Recent advances in neuroscience suggest that we are no more than inference machines with various degrees of sophistication in how we explain our thoughts. In other words, we use a lot of pattern-driven guesswork as we go about our daily lives or to fill in the gaps in an incomplete narrative. This is especially true in times of stress, as many of the mental processes that govern our reactions are associated with an urgent search for patterns To determine our moves that is our snap reaction in economic or financial crises and why we cling to our repertoire of charts of v u or l shapes of recovery among many but in very dislocated environments we find serious limitations to this approach looking at the current environment with disruptions to supply demand health and liquidity tensions We could build an ensemble of the Spanish flu, the Fukushima earthquake, and components of the 2008 crisis, for example. But given the very specific contexts of each event, we may run into endless combinations of the lessons learned from these events. As a matter of fact, in a side-by-side comparison of many economic forecasts, even similar assumptions drive very different outcomes on how this crisis will play out. This may be a case of the Anna Karenina Principle, coined by Professor Yossi Sheffi at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Paraphrasing Tolstoy, while happy economies are all alike, every unhappy economy is unhappy in its own way. We can't assume that the response to public health or financial interventions will be similar across vastly different contexts, The root cause of this mistake is to look at average responses from past events, but the reality is not like that. As referenced by Juan Luis Perez, Head of Research, Evidence Lab and Analytics at UBS, in the Financial Times, April 22nd. So, forecasting is difficult for a large number of reasons, including our limited understanding of the processes that will produce the future, their imprecise nature, the lack of historical precedent, the unpredictability of people's behavior, and the role of randomness. And these difficulties are exacerbated by today's unusual circumstances. Senior economics consultant Neil Irwin put it together very well in the New York Times on April 16th. The world economy is an infinitely complicated web of interconnections We each have a series of direct economic interrelationships we can see. The stores we buy from, the employer that pays our salary, the bank that gives us a home loan. But once you get two or three levels out, it's really impossible to know with any confidence how those connections work. And that, in turn, shows what is unnerving about the economic calamity accompanying the spread of the novel coronavirus. In the years ahead, we will learn what happens when that web is torn apart, when millions of those links are destroyed all at once. And it opens the possibility of a global economy completely different from the one that has prevailed in recent decades. I couldn't agree more with what Irwin says. Or, to use one of my all-time favorite quotes from John Kenneth Galbraith, we have two classes of forecasters, those who don't know, and those who don't know, they don't know. While I'm in the subject of favorite quotes, I'll take advantage of the occasion to share some others on this subject that I've stored up over the years. I think the first one may be the greatest ever. No amount of sophistication is going to allay the fact that all of your knowledge is about the past and all your decisions are about the future. Ian Wilson, former GE executive. Those who have knowledge don't predict. Those who predict don't have knowledge. Lao Tzu People can foresee the future only when it coincides with their own wishes, and the most grossly obvious facts can be ignored when they are unwelcome. George Orwell Forecasts create the mirage that the future is knowable. Peter Bernstein I never think of the future. It comes soon enough. Albert Einstein. The future you shall know when it has come. Before then, forget it. Aeschylus. Forecasts usually tell us more of the forecaster than of the future. Warren Buffett. I think you get the point. I seem to be in good company in my belief that the future is unknowable. Having made that assertion, I'll admit that it's an extreme oversimplification, and not entirely correct. There actually are things we know about the macro future. The trouble is that, mostly, they're things everyone knows. Examples include the fact that U.S. GDP grows about 2% per year on average. Heating oil consumption increases in winter, and a great deal of shopping is moving online. But since everyone knows these things, they're unlikely to be much help in the pursuit of above-average returns. As I've described before, The things most people expect to happen—consensus forecasts—are, by definition, incorporated into asset prices at any point in time. Since the future is usually a lot like the past, most forecasts, and especially macro forecasts, are extrapolations of recent trends and current levels, and they're built into prices. Since extrapolation is appropriate most of the time. Most people's forecasts are roughly correct. But because they're already reflected in security prices, most extrapolations aren't a source of above-average returns. The forecasts that produce great profits are the ones that presciently foresee radical deviations from the past. But that kind of forecast is, first, very hard to make, and second, rarely right. Thus... Most forecasts of deviation from trend also aren't a source of above average returns. So, let me recap. A. Only correct forecasts of a very different future are valuable. B. It's hard to make forecasts like that. C. Such unconventional predictions are rarely right. D. Thus, it's hard to be an above average forecaster. And E. It's only above-average forecasts that lead to above-average returns. So there's a conundrum. Investing is the art of positioning capital so as to profit from future developments. Most professional investors strive for above-average returns. That is, they want to beat the market and earn their fees. However, according to the just-mentioned logic, Macro forecasts shouldn't be expected to lead to above-average returns. Yet, very few people are content to invest while practicing agnosticism with regard to the macro future. They may, on some level, understand the difficulty entailed in forecasting, but their reluctance to admit their ignorance of the future, especially to themselves, usually overcomes that understanding with ease. And so they keep trying to predict future events, and the investment industry produces a large volume of forecasts. As I've expressed in recent memos, I feel the process through which most of us arrive at our view of the future is highly reflective of our biases. Given the unusually wide chasm between the optimistic and pessimistic cases at this time, and the impossibility of choosing between them based on facts and historical precedents, since there are none, I continue to think about the role of bias. One of the biggest mistakes an investor can make is ignoring or denying his or her biases. If there are influences that make our processes less than objective, we should face up to this fact in order to avoid being held captive by them. Our biases may be insidious, but they are highly influential. When I read articles about how difficult it will be to provide adequate testing for COVID-19 or to get support to small businesses, I'm pleased to see my wary views reinforced, and I find it easy to incorporate those things into my thinking. But when I hear about the benefits of reopening the economy or the possibility of herd immunity, I find it just as easy to come up with counterarguments that leave my concerns undented. This is a clear example of Confirmation Bias at Work Once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. Confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively. We pick out those bits of data that make us feel good because they confirm our prejudices. Thus, we may become prisoners of our assumptions. That's from Sharam Heshmat. Psychology Today, April 23rd, 2015. As Paul Simon wrote 50 years ago for the song The Boxer, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. While I didn't know the name for it, I've long been aware of my bias. In a recent memo, I told the story from 50 years ago when I was Citibank's office equipment analyst of being asked who the best sell-side analyst on Xerox was. My answer was simple. The one who agrees with me most is so-and-so. Most people are unlikely to think highly of anyone whose views they oppose. So, when we think about which economists we quote, which investors we respect, and where we get our information, it's likely that their views will parallel ours. Of course, taken to an extreme, this has resulted in the unfortunate polarized state in which we find the U.S. today. News organizations realized decades ago that people would rather consume stories that confirm their views than those that challenge them or are dully neutral. Few people follow media outlets that reflect a diversity of opinion. Most people stick to one newspaper, cable news channel, or political website, and few of those fairly present both sides of the story. Thus, most people hear a version of the news that is totally unlike the one heard by those on the other side of the debate. When all the facts and opinions you hear confirm your own beliefs, mental life is very relaxed, but not very enriching. What's the ideal? A calm, open mind, and an objective process. Wouldn't we all be better off if those things were universal? In Praise of Doubt Another favorite theme of mine, and I'm mildly apologetic for its repetition in these memos, is how important it is to acknowledge what we don't know. First of all, if we're going to out-invest the rest, we need a game plan. There are a lot of possible routes to success on which to base your process. In-depth research into companies, industries and securities, arbitrage, algorithmic investing. Factor investing, even indexation. But if I'm right about the difficulty of macro forecasting, for most people, that shouldn't be it. Second, and probably more importantly, excessive trust in forecasting can be dangerous to your financial health. It's never been put better than in the quote that's often attributed to Mark Twain, but also to several others It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure. That just ain't so. Just a few words, but a great deal of wisdom. No statement that starts with, I don't know, but... Or, I could be wrong, but... Ever got anyone into big trouble? If we admit to uncertainty, we'll investigate before we invest, double-check our conclusions, and proceed with caution. We may sub-optimize when times are good, but we're unlikely to flame out or melt down. On the other hand, people who are sure may dispense with those things, and if they're sure and wrong, as the quote suggests, the outcome can be catastrophic. Investing is challenging in this way, as in so many others. Active investors have to be confident. Yale's David Swenson said it as well as it can be said. That's why I go back to this quote so often in my memos and books. Establishing and maintaining an unconventional investment profile requires acceptance of uncomfortably idiosyncratic portfolios, which frequently appear downright imprudent in the eyes of conventional wisdom. From Pioneering Portfolio Management To do better than most, you have to depart from the crowd. As I said in my April 6th memo, calibrating, echoing Swenson, all great investments begin in discomfort since the things everyone likes and feels good about are unlikely to be on the bargain counter. But to invest in things that are out of favor, at the risk of standing out from the crowd and appearing to have made a big mistake, takes confidence and resolve. It also requires confidence to hold on to a position when it declines and perhaps add to it at lower prices, in the period before one's wisdom becomes clear and it turns into a winner. And it takes confidence to continue holding a highly appreciated investment you think still has upside potential at the risk of possibly giving up some of the gains to date. But when does reason based confidence turn into hubris and obstinateness? That's the key question. Holding and adding to declining positions is only a good idea if the underlying thesis turns out to be right and things eventually go as expected. In other words, When do you allow for the possibility that you're wrong? From the very beginning of my investing career, I've felt a sense of uncertainty. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Investing scared, a less glamorous term than applying appropriate risk aversion, will push you to do thorough due diligence, employ conservative assumptions, insist on an ample margin of safety in case things go wrong, and invest only when the potential return is at least commensurate with the risk. In fact, I think worry sharpens your focus. Investing scared will result in making fewer mistakes, although perhaps at the price of failing to take maximum advantage of bull markets. When I started investing in high-yield bonds in 1978, and when Bruce Karsh and I first targeted distressed debt in 1988, It seemed clear that the route to long-term success in such uncertain areas lay in limiting losses rather than targeting maximum gains. That approach has permitted us to still be here, while many one-time competitors no longer are. I can tell you that in the global financial crisis, following the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, we felt enormous uncertainty. If you didn't, there was something wrong with you, since there was a meaningful possibility the financial system would collapse. When we started buying, Bruce came to me often saying, I think we're going too slow, and then the next day, I think we're going too fast. But that didn't keep him from investing an average of $450 million per week over the last 15 weeks of 2008. I think Bruce's ability to grapple with his doubts helped him arrive at the right pace of investment. The topic of dealing with what you don't know brings me to a phrase I came across a few years ago and think is very important. Intellectual humility. Here's part of the article that first brought it to my attention. Intellectual humility has been something of a wallflower among personality traits, receiving far less scholarly attention than such brash qualities as egotism or hostility. Yet, this little-studied characteristic may influence people's decision-making abilities in politics, health, and other arenas, says new research from Duke University. As defined by the authors, intellectual humility is the opposite of intellectual arrogance or conceit. In common parlance, it resembles open-mindedness. Intellectually humble people can have strong beliefs, but recognize their fallibility and are willing to be proven wrong on matters large and small, Leary said. Alison Jones, Duke Today, March seventeenth, 2017 To get a little more technical, here are a couple of useful paragraphs from a discussion of the paper just cited. The term intellectual humility, IH, has been defined in several ways, but most definitions converge on the notion that IH involves recognizing that one's beliefs and opinions might be incorrect. Some definitions of IH include other features or characteristics, such as low defensiveness, appreciating other people's intellectual strengths, or a pro-social orientation. One conceptualization defines intellectual humility as recognizing that a particular personal belief may be fallible, Accompanied by an appropriate attentiveness to limitations in the evidentiary basis of that belief and to one's own limitations in obtaining and evaluating relevant information. This definition qualifies the core characteristic, recognizing that one's belief may be wrong, with considerations that distinguish IH from mere lack of confidence in one's knowledge or understanding. IH can be distinguished from uncertainty or low self confidence. By the degree to which people hold their beliefs tentatively, specifically because they are aware that the evidence on which those beliefs are based could be limited or flawed, that they might lack relevant information, or that they may not have the expertise or ability to understand and evaluate the evidence. The Psychology of Intellectual Humility, Mark Leary, Duke University. Attentiveness to limitations in the evidentiary basis or to the limitations imposed by future uncertainty, is a very important further concept. Here's how I discussed it in my book, Mastering the Market Cycle. Most people think the way to deal with the future is by formulating an opinion as to what's going to happen, perhaps via a probability distribution. I think there are actually two requirements, not one. In addition to an opinion regarding what's going to happen, People should have a view on the likelihood that their opinion will prove correct. Some events can be predicted with substantial confidence. For example, will a given investment-grade bond pay the interest it promises? Some are uncertain. Will Amazon still be the leader in online retailing in 10 years? And some are entirely unpredictable. Will the stock market go up or down next month? It's my point here that not all predictions should be treated as equally likely to be correct, and thus they shouldn't be relied on equally. I don't think most people are as aware of this as they should be. In short, we have to have a realistic view of the probability that we're right before we choose a course of action and decide how heavily to bet on it. And anyone who's sure about what's going to happen in the world, the economy, or the markets is probably deceiving himself. It all comes down to dealing with uncertainty. To me, that starts with acknowledging uncertainty and having an appropriate degree of respect for it. As I quoted Annie Duke this past January in my memo, You Bet, what good poker players and good decision-makers have in common is their comfort with the world being an uncertain and unpredictable place. They understand that they can almost never know exactly how something will turn out. They embrace that uncertainty, and instead of focusing on being sure, they try to figure out how unsure they are, making their best guess at the chances that different outcomes will occur. Thinking in bets. To put it simply, intellectual humility means saying, I'm not sure. The other person could be right, or even I might be wrong. I think it's an essential trait for investors. I know it is in the people I like to associate with. As so often happens when I'm thinking about a memo, I recently got an incredibly helpful note from my friend Leslie Lichtenstein at the University of Chicago, connecting the concept of humility to the current episode. Here's what she wrote. This morning I read an article from Behavioral Scientist by Eric Angner, professor of practical philosophy at Stockholm University, called Epistemic Humility, Knowing Your Limits in a Pandemic which made me think of you and several of your recent memos. The article opens with a quote from Charles Darwin in 1871. Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. It goes on to say, Being a true expert involves not only knowing stuff about the world, but also knowing the limits of your knowledge and expertise. I couldn't agree more. People who are always sure are no more helpful than people who are never sure. The real expert's confidence is reason-based and proportional to the weight of the evidence. Leslie's note sent me to the original of the article she cited, and I found so much to share. In the middle of a pandemic, knowledge is in short supply. We don't know how many people are infected or how many people will be. We have much to learn about how to treat the people who are sick and how to help prevent infection in those who aren't. There's reasonable disagreement on the best policies to pursue, whether about health care, economics, or supply distribution. Although scientists worldwide are working hard and in concert to address these questions, final answers are some ways away. Another thing that's in short supply is the realization of how little we know frequent expressions of supreme confidence might seem odd in light of our obvious and inevitable ignorance about a new threat. The thing about overconfidence, though, is that it afflicts most of us much of the time. That's according to cognitive psychologists who've studied the phenomenon systematically for half a century. Overconfidence has been called the mother of all psychological biases. The point is not that true experts should withhold their beliefs or that they should never speak with conviction. Some beliefs are better supported by the evidence than others, after all, and we should not hesitate to say so. The point is that true experts express themselves with the proper degree of confidence, meaning with a degree of confidence that's justified given the evidence. Compare what you hear on TV against a tweet from medical statistician Robert Grant. I've studied this stuff at university, done data analysis for decades, written several NHS guidelines, including one for an infectious disease, and taught it to health professionals. That's why you don't see me making any coronavirus forecasts. The concept of epistemic humility is an intellectual virtue. It is grounded in the realization that our knowledge is always provisional and incomplete, and that it might require revision in light of new evidence. Grant appreciates the extent of our ignorance under these difficult conditions. The other characters don't. A lack of epistemic humility is a vice, and it can cause massive damage both in our private lives and in public policy. Calibrating your confidence can be tricky. As Justin Kruger and David Dunning have emphasized, our cognitive and metacognitive skills are intertwined. People who lack the cognitive skills required to perform a task typically also lack the metacognitive skills required to assess their performance. Incompetent people are at a double disadvantage since they are not only incompetent but also likely unaware of it. Galbraith's forecasters who don't know they don't know. This has immediate implications for amateur epidemiologists. If you don't have the skill set required to do advanced epidemiological modeling yourself, you should assume that you can't tell good models from bad. It's never been more important to learn to separate the wheat from the chaff. The experts who offer well-sourced information from the charlatans who offer little but misdirection. The latter are sadly common in part because they are in greater demand on TV and in politics. It can be hard to tell who's who, but paying attention to their confidence offers a clue. People who express themselves with extreme confidence without having access to relevant information and the experience and training required to process it can safely be classified among the charlatans until further notice. Again, It is fine and good to have opinions and to express them in public, even with great conviction. The point is that true experts, unlike charlatans, express themselves in a way that mirrors their limitations. All of us who want to be taken seriously would do well to demonstrate the virtue of epistemic humility. Eric Angner, Behavioral Scientist, April 13th. The more I think about it, the bottom line is clear. The world is an uncertain place. It's more uncertain today than at any other time in our lifetimes. Few people know what the future holds much better than others. And yet, investing deals entirely with the future, meaning investors can't avoid making decisions about it. Confidence is indispensable in investing, but too much of it can be lethal. The bigger the topic—world, economy, markets, currencies and rates— the less possible it is to achieve superior knowledge. Even our decisions about smaller things, companies, industries, and securities, have to be conditioned on assumptions regarding the bigger things, so they, too, are uncertain. The ability to deal intelligently with uncertainty is one of the most important skills. In doing so, we should understand the limitations on our foresight and whether a given forecast is more or less dependable than most. Anyone who fails to do so is probably riding for a fall. As Neil Irwin wrote in the article cited earlier, it would be foolish amid such uncertainty to make overly confident predictions about how the world economic order will look in five years, or even five months. Or maybe Voltaire said it best 250 years ago, Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. May 11th, 2020. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oaktree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oaktree.